Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I am flying solo today. Daily Coast The Brief is our weekly show about politics, but today it's a show about the Ukrainian war. Today's show, I promise you, is going to make you the smartest person in the room when talking about the Ukraine. And I have two incredible guests today, and let's bring them on right here at the top. First up is John Soltz. He is the chairman of Vote Vets, which advocates for Iraq and Afghanistan veteran community. He served two tours in Iraq, including a stint as a logistics officer. And you know that's going to be a big uh, topic of discussion today. He also served in Kosovo as a tank platoon leader. We also have Brandon Friedman. Brandon is the co-founder of Rakasan Tea Company, a Dallas-based business that promotes peace and development by importing and selling premium tea grown solely in current and post-conflict countries. He has worked with Julian Castro, Tammy Duckworth, and Votevitz, actually. Brandon served two combat tours as an officer with the Army's 101st Airborne Division in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's also the author of the combat memoir, The War I Always Wanted. Kind of wish that we didn't <laughs> have to talk about this, this, this uh, terrible war. But, um, but it is, it is um, I mean, we're seeing history sort of play out in front of us. And it, it's giving us a almost shades, I think, of 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, right? This idea that you have this unstoppable force, this global superpower, and suddenly it just starts crumbling before our eyes. And I, I know both you guys have been tweeting and writing about, about how surprisingly poor the, the invasion has gone from the beginning. And, and just for context, we have, an, you know, you had 180,000 Russian troops. I'm not sure if all of them are actually combat. There's a lot of support troops in that number, but 180,000 troops. But they've come in from about 15 different directions, you know, in, in four major one, two, three, four major uh, axes. So you're splitting that up. And Ukrainian resistance has, has held up. What has most surprised you about how this war has, has uh, shaped, shaped out in these first few days? Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, I think everybody has sort of been shocked at, at the lack of competence on the part of the Russian military. Um, I think everybody sort of expected something different here. There was sort of a sense, I think, in the 1990s after the Cold War, that the Russians weren't that great. But then over the last 20 years, you know, that had kind of changed. They, they, were, they had supposedly modernized their military in terms of equipment, tactics, and all this stuff. And we, we, we'd seen them operate a little in Syria, but um, I don't think anyone expected this this performance, which has just been terrible. I mean, it, it almost seems like Putin himself didn't know <laughs> that its military was this poor. I mean, the entire point of this war was for him to say, no, the West can't focus on China. We are a global superpower. Pay attention to us and we're going to yeah. take what's ours. Yeah. And almost the exact opposite has come out. Anybody that might be afraid of Russia suddenly is thinking, okay, they got nukes. Let's not pretend that Russia is not incredibly dangerous, mm -hmm. but maybe they're not as fearsome as we thought. Yeah, they, they don't appear to be. Um, it, 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 they don't appear to be able to come. You know, we talk about the combined arms fight in the military yeah, explain and they don't that. appear Just to be able to do that. What is the combined? Yeah. Arms I mean, you've you got to be able to leverage, you know, um, Air power, sea power, land power, and within land power, you've got to be able to leverage artillery with armor and infantry, you know, and combine those all so that they, you know, operate at the same time efficiently. And they don't seem to be able to do that. Yeah. John, do we have you? I'm here, man. Oh, great, great. So we were, we're sorry, just talking broadly speaking about the, the, the start of the conflict and just <clears throat> the myth of, of Russian power right like Putin thought he was going to be you know look at me don't look at China like I'm a global superpower right. you know hear me roar and then you have Russian POWs crying right it's just right. sort of 
shatters this entire myth. And and so Brandon was 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 talking about sorry they can't get their you know combined arms operation uh, put together. So let me ask you this, John. You're coming in from Belarus. How do you organize an invasion that would strike at Kiev? Uh, Kiev? Yeah. Let, let me back up the one thing, Mar- Marcos, because there's a reason that the American military felt this way about Russia, right? Part of it is what they did in Georgia. George Bush let them basically go into Georgia uncontested. Georgia right? oh. in Asia, not Georgia. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> not our Georgia. Right. Barack Obama essentially let them just have Crimea. Right. We saw them use sea fires with maneuver in Syria. We've seen them use drones and artillery fires in Donbas. And in, in reality, when you go out to the army training center sites like that, that scared the shit out of us. You know, the fact that they were able to send drones two clicks into Ukraine and use rocket systems to take out artillery battalions was a shot across the bow. And as you saw U.S. forces become experts on counterinsurgency in Iraq or Afghanistan, you saw an uptick in, you know, Russian maneuver, Russian, you know, the Russian army, you know, at some level it was rebuilt. So at some level, we've seen them do some proficient warfighting functions, right? There's six basic warfighting functions that the U.S. Army uh, uses. Information operations, command and control, maneuver, fires, sustainment, and force protection. And so if you can do those things together, you win. At least we do. And we saw them begin to do fires and maneuver. We saw it in Syria. We can saw can it we explain what each one of those elements is? Yeah. So command and control is like, your, we call it C2. It's your command structure. And and, and when you're dealing with the Russian military, the command structure is at the top, right? It's same, same with the Iraqi army. You know, when I trained the Iraqi army, they, there was no, look, you, you don't, it's unlike the American military where we, we have depth of leadership everywhere. I mean, they're, they're always afraid of a coup. So command and control is very centralized. So if you knock off the head of it, it's over. So when you look at what we saw in Donbass or you look at what we saw in Syria, you had a very linear C2 structure right to the top where it was a limited amount of troops doing these things. When they open it up, they can't do it. When you talk By about opening maneuver, it up, you're talking about multiple fronts, multiple, and... like 100,000 troops, right? Versus yeah. like 3,000 doing something in special forces. So when you look at maneuver and fires, right? Maneuver is like your infantry and your armor and, and how do they operate with fires? Well, very different from the American army. The American army uses maneuver right? They use fire to support maneuver, right? So we're going to, we're going to call in fire to assist our maneuver elements. And fire is artillery. Right. Russia's opposite. Air power. And yeah, Russia uses their maneuver to protect their fires because they level cities in World War II. And that's always been a basic doctrinal difference. Sustainment, of course, we've all seen. I mean, they have all the gas in the world, but they can't move it. So when you look at all Sustainment is logistics. Sustainment is logistics, right? And and so they, they've struggled there, but there was real reason to look at what had happened in Donbas and what had happened with drones and fires in, in the eastern part of Ukraine for the last six years that scared us out at army training centers. You know, like they were doing, they, there was, they used naval sea fires with maneuver in Syria. But when they bring it all together at one time with 100,000 troops, they're really struggling, right? So you, you bring up the like, how would you go about this attack? You know, and would you come in from Belarus? I w- look, the Belarus... The Belarus line of communication to me has never made sense. And, and when we went over this at War College, it's like, look, if you're Russia, you want to stay in the terrain where the Russian population is. So in my opinion, if I, if I was in charge of the Russian army, you would have come from the east or from Crimea and you would have met and you would have created a land bridge where you have the Russian population. And so and you would have used that to get the negotiated response that you want from Ukraine, which is, I don't want you a part of NATO, which is the strategic objective. I don't want the open door policy. Instead, they chose three lines of effort, right? One from the South, one from the East, and one from the North. And now they have to protect that. And that's very complicated. When we went into Iraq, we had two. It was really one and a quarter because we airborne dropped the 173rd in. So, you know, when, when you have all these lines of effort, now you have to provide force protection and sustainment and all these different things. And so they have an, we would say in the American army, an operational design problem, right? And their strategic objectives are not linked with, you know, tactical and operational objectives that are going to achieve that goal. So I know Putin's upset right now. I know he's scared. I know he thinks he's in trouble. So he wants to bomb these cities, but you know, th- there's design flaws here that, you know, the American press should hold on to and say, Putin's in deep shit, okay? And we shouldn't let him off the hook here and make, make this army look like it, it's anything more than disorganized piece of chaos right now on the ground. Yeah, so one of the, one of the earliest signs that maybe 
Russia was going to be in trouble is this airborne assault at the international airport right outside of Kiev, where they where they seemed to just drop them and with no sign of support or, or anything. And they ended up getting wiped out within a day. Brandon, you were in an airborne division that whose job is to do this kind of operation. So you're looking at that. What was your take on that operation and what would U.S. Army would have done different? So it, it looked to me from what from what I heard about that operation was that all they did was drop paratroopers on an airfield. It didn't look like, you know, I, I saw no evidence that they had pathfinders on the ground, that they dropped pathfinders in to. to hey, what would path, pathfinders do? Establish the drop zone. Um, okay. And they can also communicate if there are security issues. You know, like there's a Ukrainian battalion right there, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It, it doesn't look like they did that. Um, they have never had um, control of the airspace. And, you know, you want control of the airspace before you, before you, you drop paratroopers on, a, on an airfield. Um, it didn't look like, it doesn't look like they had the intel to determine what Ukrainian forces were in the vicinity. Because it looks, it sounds like as soon as they dropped these guys, like they, you know, they got rolled up really rapidly. Yeah, I mean, you'd think they would assume that yeah. there would be resistance. I mean, well, you, you, would, you, would, you would think that they would assume there's going to be resistance so that they would prepare for it. Because even if there's going to be, you can, you know, uh, a seizure of an, of an airfield is a forcible seizure. So you can expect resistance to still do it, but you've got to prepare. Um, you've got to, you know, you have to have the intel that tells you what's on the ground, what you're going to be facing, uh, what you're going to need to do that. They had, they had no support for this. They dropped these guys and then the Ukrainian army just rolled them up. And, and I, I don't know all the details. I don't know if they killed them or took them prisoner, but um, that was the first sign for me that something was not right because the, the U S military would never ever in, in this day and age drop paratroopers to seize an airfield when, when there's a, a, you know, a chance for failure, you know, I, I mean, mean, they're surrounded you, by hostile territory. They're surrounded by people with uh, surface to air missiles. So they can, any supply operations are threatened. There's no land links to supply them. And when we're talking about supply and so people understand this, ammunition, food, uh, equipment, because equipment breaks down. So, and so they were left. And so they handed Ukraine an easy propaganda victory. Here they are under Mm -hmm. intense assault on 20, you know, everybody's thinking Kiev's going to fall within 24 hours. That was that first day, right? It seemed like, and because I think there's still this myth of this competent Russian army. And of course they're only, you know, hundred kilometers away. They're, they're going to roll in. And then they pull that off. And then I think that sends a message to, to the Ukrainian uh, military that, Oh my God, these guys are, this is BDV. This is elite Russian forces, not conscripts. And we just rolled them. Yeah. And I I think John made a really good point the other day about, 72 hours being sort of the, the, I don't remember what you call it, the golden point in terms of logistics. And that's true. Uh, infantry, you know, armor, troops that are, that are on the move in combat generally will carry about three days worth of supplies, food, water, ammunition. And, and you need to be able, you need to be resupplied. And after the first three days of this, it was very clear that, that they didn't have, that, that they didn't have those supply lines established to resupply these guys. And that was when you see, that was when you saw uh, people start, you know, Russian troops start to abandon tanks and, and stuff like that. Yeah, John, why are logistics important? Like what, yeah. and you did this, right? And this is incredibly complex. And- yeah, I mean, it's, that is my real profession, right? Military logistics is my real profession. And I mean, I started off in armor and because I was an armor, I used to, you know, I, I always joke with Brandon because he's a 101st guy, but, you know, I, I, when I was a kid out, I went to airborne school and I thought I was so cool. But, the, and, you know, you watch World War II and you see the 101st in Bastogne, and that's a perfect example of being surrounded without logistics, right? You, you, see, you see Arnhem and the bridge too far in Battle of Market Garden where the armor could not get up the road to airborne paratroopers and they ended up, you know, the British troops were, were, were beat up pretty good. So whenever you drop folks in, you got to get logistics there, right? We almost dropped 2nd Brigade to 82nd into Biop in 03 in Baghdad, but we were nervous. We could not get there to give them support. So logistics starts to play a role. For airborne logistics, it's a little bit different. It's light logistics, so it's at some level easier for us, right? But you have to get there to create that line of communication. For us, if we were going to go in, you know, 
if if we were to send a division in, right, that would carry three days of support with it. We would refuel them at the line of departure. So they leave with 72 hours of fuel. But what would happen on that route, we call them main supply routes, MSRs, we would dominate that road. So we would use air air cover like helicopters. We would have MPs on that road. And we would leave the engineer battalion or the engineer engineer assets or a maneuver brigade to do rear area security. Like this is just basic TTP maneuvers that we do in the American Army. All right, TTP. That so gives, we're gonna have to. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Train just basic training op, training standard operating procedures. So, so yeah. now you have a, a road that maybe for sixty miles is completely secure, right? We've got infantry outside the road, so you can you know you you could send mechanized columns up it. You know, it, armor cannot move without infantry, right? That's why you see these javelins working so well. So imagine a and road. That's, that's is a good point, though. Why why can armor not move without infantry? This is because a critical point because it's yeah. one of the biggest failings of this attack right now. Yeah, because the you know the 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 armor columns and the the truck convoys are stuck on the middle of the road and there's nobody protecting you know a quarter mile out. I mean those javelins can hit you from like two two kilometers. So I mean we've know, seen we, guys with RPGs taking out you know because sure. there's no infantry and I just think people right. should realize when you're in one of those tanks or armored personnel carriers. You can't see shit. Like no. your visibility is severely restricted. That gun's not going to take out infantry. It's a big gun. It's designed to take out other tanks uh, or other uh, armored vehicles. Maybe there's a machine gun, 50 cal, whatever the, the Russian equivalent is at the top of it, but they're really blind around them. So infantry actually protects the heavy armor on, the, on, the, on, the, on its flanks. And, and sustainment. And so now, now you look at imagine a corridor that your sustainment can go up for, for 25, 30, 40 miles, set up a forward sustainment platform that you can then send the heavy mechanized fuelers back to you and then they push forward or you can push forward to them and come back to your base so that's how we do it but we've got to create the security for the sustainment to work because you can't do it generally a, a heavy brigade combat team at the national training center you know is going to be twenty-five thousand gallons of fuel every other day right that's how much fuel is required in heavy equipment so life guys is easy it's 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 yeah it, it takes right? about what um half a mile per gallon so <laughs> yeah so, so you have all right so you've got all these fancy artillery guns you've got all these you know apcs they have btrs bimps and and t80s and t72s and whatever they have old stuff but if it has no fuel it's rendered useless and that's what you start to see and so when they cannot combine sustainment with maneuver which we're seeing you know they're struggling they're struggling when they try to put it all together at one time and you could kind of see the writing on the on the, on the wall and you know, I think Brandon, that's why I was pretty confident that day of like, you can see what's going to happen here because they never controlled those roads. And if they can't control yeah. those roads, they can't get support up it to, to back, to back up their people. Well, so there was a, um, there was somebody that said the other day on Twitter, they, they showed a picture of like a, an abandoned T a Russian T-72 tank that had like driven into a ditch. And they said, that's probably pretty easily recoverable. And it's like, yes, it should be easily recoverable. It's normally easily recoverable if you have the infantry to set out security to secure the vicinity of the tank. If you have the engineers who can come in with the heavy equipment and pull it out of the ditch, you know, and you have the, the air cover, you know, to yeah. prevent any other, you know, enemy forces from approaching. Brandon, the worst, the worst argument I've seen on Twitter is the one that shows where U.S. forces were at day four in Iraq and where Russian forces are in day four in Ukraine. Because, like, we didn't have people deserting. Okay, yeah, of course our, our, our maintenance is always a problem, right? But, oh, but, I want to talk about that a yeah. little bit. My experience, but we but <laughs> we, but what We control battle space, you know? Like, you, you don't want to move too fast that you can't control what's behind you. And the truth was when there was a sandstorm in 03, yeah. that was a really good, I mean, that was a moment for us to resupply ourselves. When you look at 96 hours in the Gulf War, we yeah. were out of fuel. So we also have these challenges in a mechanized fight. But the idea that you can compare 03 and the US invasion to, to what you're seeing in the in Russian army to me is a total historical revision. And that that sort of gets under my skin when I see it on Twitter because it's completely it's a completely ridiculous comparison at this point. Well, you know, everybody that was an expert epidemiologist over the last two years is now an expert tactician. So yeah. it's the nature of, of Twitter. So, you know, I was I was MLRS. I was multiple law, uh, launch rocket system, rocket artillery, these horrible barrages you're seeing, particularly in uh, Kharkiv, because that artillery doesn't have supply issues. They're literally sitting on, on is it Belarus or Russian territory? I think it's Russian territory. So 
that's why that city is getting pummeled like no other city right now. That's what I did. And there was nine rocket launchers, armored, tracked rocket launchers. And I actually had to go back and look to make sure because I, I wanted to make sure I remember correctly. Those nine launchers, we had 63 vehicles in our battery to support nine launchers. We're talking right. um, ammo trucks, two fuel trucks, a, a crane to pull out <laughs> our vehicles when they ended up in a ditch, which happened a lot. Humvees, command and control um, vehicles. I was in one of those control, uh, command and control vehicles. And I was in charge of logistics for my, for my platoon, which was three launchers and getting fuel, food, mechanics. And I just, mechanics. I mean, we couldn't move 10 miles without something breaking down. It was, and this is active duty, constant maintenance under the best peacetime conditions. We couldn't get these things. We're looking at Russian armor moving on the streets to get places. They don't even have flatbed trucks to carry them. It's a wonder anything is moving. Marcos, this is a great point with training the Iraqi and Afghan armies. You know, my, my second tour in Iraq, I was doing it. And we, at the very last thing I was involved with was foreign military sales in Taji. And, you know, we were giving them M1s. And I'm like, listen, I'm a heavy brigade combat team logistician. Like, you're talking about a supply chain that goes back to the States. We have a hard time with a highly educated military, right? And, and I know people think maybe that's different, but the truth is that 10% of the Afghan army was literate, right? So of sustainment and keeping maintenance going with our own advanced weaponry. And so it was the whole AK-47 versus M4 scenario. You know, give them AKs because they don't have to maintain it. When you get the into AK the is a, it's a venerable it's old a rifle. Russian rifle that right. is, you can drag it through mud and a thing will work. Yeah, you're, you're, you're better off to give them things they can sustain and manage on their own than providing Western, the Western way of war. And that, that gives them a fighting chance. And so we, that's why we say logistics wins wars. And it's, it's, you can see the amount of time and effort we put into it in the American army that you really got to be proficient at sustainment. And without it, I, I got to tell you, the, the Russians are lucky that the United States isn't involved. I mean, this show would have been over. Like, th th there's no second chances for these kids. And I, I will tell yeah. you, like, I do feel bad for the conscripts because we are learning here that conscription may not be the 21st century way of war. It just and, and, and people always say, should there be a draft in the American army during Iraq? The answer is no. Right. Because you've got to have people that want to fight. You've got to have people that want to be there. And I, I've, I take some sympathy in these Russian soldiers who, you know, literally didn't know where they were going, which isn't surprising considering the fact that they limit the amount of information they pass down and they have no, no non-commissioned officer corps to lead these kids. Yeah. I mean, I've even seen Twitter threads where they're, they're using unsecured civilian walkie talkies to communicate. So there's this whole crew now that have come up with civilians that are intercepting this information, translating it, getting information to relevant uh, Ukrainian units. And, but they're also getting an insight, you know, they're, they're hearing Russian soldiers crying while they're under, you know, assault. And, and yeah. it, it's, it's, I gotta say, I'm, I'm more sympathetic for Russians now than I had been almost ever, which is really ironic giving the horror what's happening because you realize how much of it is just driven by Putin and right. how yeah. these people really had no interest. But that also means that's what's so dangerous about artillery because they don't know what they're firing. They, they may be told that they're firing on army barracks. And so it's a difference. You almost see the difference, right? The artillery is just, you know, that seems to be doing a really good job effective of doing the r typical Russian thing, flattening things. It, it takes uh, that human element out of it, Marcos. <laughs> you know, you don't see what you're doing. You, you don't see, like when you're doing MLRS and you're shooting, you know, 20 clicks, you don't see, you don't see it. It's not in your face, you know? This is why it's going to be a really, really big shock to these guys once they get inside Kiev. Brandon, I was about to ask that question because you just did a Twitter thread today that was excellent that said, if you were Russia on that, on that trail down to Kiev, I would turn around and go back. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. No, I would. I would turn around and, and go right back the way I came because – so Russia's eventually going to be able to overpower the Ukrainian army when it comes to breaking into the cities. Um, just by, by sheer brute force, um, they will. Um, but then once they get in there, then they have to sustain themselves and they have to pacify the population and they have to be able to set up some form of governance and, and all this stuff. Uh, they're not going to be able to do that because everyone in Kyiv hates them. And it's going to become a living nightmare for these guys once they get inside the city. You know, there's a, I don't know if you guys have seen a Bronx tale. Um, there's a scene where these, uh, these bikers go to break up a bar and, uh, 
these mob guys ask them to leave and they say they're not going to leave. Uh, and so the guy goes over there and he closes the door to the bar. He locks it and he says, now you just can't leave. Uh, and then they come in and, and beat these guys about to death. And, and I always think about that because it's, you know, once, once the Russian troops get into Kiev, they're not going to, they're going to be trapped and they're not going to be able to leave. And it's going to be an absolute nightmare of an insurgency against these guys. Because one thing I always talk about was that in, in Iraq and in Baghdad, there was never a point at which more than 1% of the population was willing to pick up arms and fight the American troops, the Iraqi government forces. Um, and that's a lot. You know, in the city of Baghdad, the 6 million people, that's still 60,000 people. But it was never more than that. You know, it was never more than 1%. You're looking at Eve where there's going to be 10, 15, 20% of the population is going to take up arms against you. So whatever we saw in Fallujah, Ramadi, Baghdad, you're looking at probably 10 to 20 times the number of fighters that you're facing. And you're not only going to be – and what we were facing in Iraq, we were facing Iraqis that had Iraq, old Iraqi military weaponry, and in some cases they were reinforced by Iranian weapons. Okay, that's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as being reinforced by – when you're facing a force that's being reinforced by NATO weaponry – and javelins and, you know, communications equipment and all this stuff. Uh, It's just going to be a nightmare for the Russians. And they're going to be facing a a population where a high percentage hates them. A high percentage is going to be willing to take up arms, and they're angry. It's going to be a hornet's nest, and it's not going to look like Iraq or Afghanistan. This is the point, Brandon. I agree with you that I'm not seeing it on the cable shows, right? And – the truth is, like, if you, you don't actually want to take Kiev right now, like, you don't want it. Like, you do not want it because, it, again, if your strategic objective is to keep Ukraine away from NATO and, and, and destroy the open door policy and get a puppet government, yeah. how is what you're doing achieving that objective? But I, I 100% agree with you because I always said, hey, you know, maybe in Baghdad it was like 40, 60 against us, 50, 50, whatever it was. And then there's the people that fight against you. They go into that city. Let them have it. Like, everyone's like, oh, my God, the convoy, the convoy. I don't, I don't like that. I mean, like, dude, like, these, there is no way for Russia to win this war. I don't care how many buildings they knock down. I don't care how many casualties, you know, Ukraine takes. Like, they are going to win this war because the, the, the goals that Putin has, you know, pushed are not achievable. And yeah, speak. What are those? Level, there's two goals. You, you've written about those two goals. Well, I mean, look, he does not like this open door policy. He does not yeah. want Ukraine apart from NATO like Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. He does not want that, right? Because he, he wants to, you know, get back to, to the place he was. So his concept was, oh, let me intimidate, you know, people and keep NATO away from Ukraine. To do that, he wants to put a puppet regime in there, right? That was the whole Manafort kind of, you know, he was working for the Russian puppet regime and all that stuff. But the point still is, if you take Kiev at this point, because they didn't surrender like he thought. I mean, he thought he'd walk in, they'd surrender. You're grabbing the tiger by its tail and you're looking at some type of operation that is going to be brutal. And I, I think that's why we're seeing the shift in strategy or tactics today to just be like, let's go back to blowing cities up because that is, might be Putin's best chance to get some type of negotiated, you know, end state that he doesn't look completely like an idiot, you know. But I will tell you, when, when, if for people that watch this, if you're watching TV and they're like, oh, my God, Kiev's going to be occupied, take it. Like they're literally. not taking anything. <laughs> it's like, like you don't want it. You yeah. don't want it because of what Brandon's saying. Like now you're dealing in an asymmetric 365 battlefield that is where a huge percents of the population are armed that want to fight you. And the casualties are going to be substantial for Russia. It might it might look ugly for a week, but I'm telling you, in the long run, Russia cannot win this war. They cannot win this war at the goals the way they've established it right now. You know, ultimately, the U.S. wasn't, you know, we can argue about the success of the U.S. in Iraq. But um, ultimately, any success that we did have or, the, or our ability to stay there for so long and help prop up the Iraqi government was premised on the idea that Iraqis were helping us. Yeah. We hired Iraqis who worked with the U.S. forces from day one, I mean, who wanted to help. There was a, a, a huge portion of that population it was happy to have us there and overthrow Saddam. And, uh, 100%. you know, and, and so, so the way that where that, where that, what that looks like in real life is not only do you have people who can interpret for you and translate and, and help you with stuff, 
but they can warn you. They can tell you when there when there's some guys down the road who are planting IDs or where there's some guys down the road sitting in ambush. The Russians aren't going to have that. No one wants to help them. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, and, and it's going to be it's going to be such a difficult environment in which to operate eventually. You know, and you're already dealing with conscripts who don't want to be there, who didn't think this is what they were going to be doing. It, it's going to be brutal for them. So you mentioned, Brandon, earlier the the javelins. And so everybody understands javelin are anti-tank missiles that along with British um NLAWS, N-L-A-W, have dramatically, I think, shifted the tide of this war because it allows these cheap missiles to take out Russian armor and trucks and supply, whatever, everything, right? Um, and they're flooding in. And I just, I just saw today that in Western, I mean, unfortunately, there's no, you can't airdrop this stuff into Kiev anymore, it doesn't look like, but the rail network out in Western Ukraine is still intact. Like this entire logistical chain yeah. in Ukraine is in operation. They can still get supplies into, into Kiev through uh, land. And that may end, you know, they may get encircled eventually. But um, it allows them a, a, to, to move supplies to the fighters at the front lines. And that's just, they can't get their own supply lines in, in, uh, in shape. But they also haven't taken out Ukraine's supply lines. And you'd think by now they'd, they would have uh, control of the skies. And I wonder if they can't even fly these planes, like these, there's, they should be swarming like, like Iraq was in those early days. It was thousands of sorties and, and cruise missiles. And here we have, I think, 180 cruise missiles in almost a week of war. And, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred sorties. Do they even have air power? Does that even exist? I don't, I don't know. Um, so a lot of the, the problems that the Russians have faced are sort of explainable, like we've talked about with their inability to, you know, to, to operate in a, in a combined arms environment. There's a lot of questions that, that, that honestly, Marcos, I don't think we understand why they're performing so poorly. Like we talk, people have talked about the mystery of the missing air force. I don't know. No one yeah, seems to know where, where they are. Like what happened? Like, uh, yeah, in those first early days you saw in, in fact, in that attack on, on the airport, you know, there was a swarm of attack helicopters early, early, but then they seem to be gone. Did they all break down? Yeah, I don't know if they're being shot down, if they just, you know, if they're running out of fuel, if they're running out of armaments. I, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's just been astonishing to see this. It's, it's ironic that, that the cyber, cyber, uh, saber rattling has now spurred Finland and Sweden, historically neutral countries, to now openly talk about joining NATO at the same time that Russia looks as low as a threat militarily aside from the nuclear missiles and well, so we, we john, can't forget this is what john's talking about with their with them achieving their strategic objectives like you know if you want it, you you want to you know expand your influence out and and push nato back all they've done is galvanize europe so now instead of having you know instead of keeping ukraine out of nato now you're going to get ukraine and nato and you're going to get Finland and Sweden and, you know, Kosovo is trying to get, well, I think Kosovo is trying to get involved. And I mean, it's, everybody wants in now. Marcos, listen, there was, there was this, there was this Ukrainian colonel. We listened to him at war college this summer and he was like, please, we want to be a part of NATO. And I'm like, you know, way, dude, they're already in Donbass and they control Crimea. Like this was a viable opinion at this point. I, I you know, I, the, the fear last week was, could they, could they cut off the Sawaki gap? Like, could they control Ukraine? And then there's a very limited piece of terrain between Kaliningrad and Belarus, right, that we maneuver through to get into the Baltics. If they cut off the Baltics, there's going to be a big war. I mean, this was the, the line of thought a week ago that, you know, basically everything has backfired on Russia, where Finland and Sweden, who've always been neutral now, are saying, hey, please. But again, the conventional thought a week ago was, how do we get troops in? And, and listen, Marcos, at vote bets, we took a lot of heat for saying we needed more troops in NATO countries, right? Remember, Obama put them in at the end of his administration. Trump took some of them out. Everyone's like, oh, why didn't anything happen to Trump? We have no idea what was going on between Donald Trump and his conversations with Putin. And oh, Biden. no idea. Busy getting rid of NATO. He was he was undermining right. it. I mean, he was and so, Trump, uh, Putin's best wish. Right. There, there were progressive Democrats on TV saying there's no military problem here. Look, all my time in the army, 
there's no, like Iraq and Afghanistan. You can argue, where's the military solution? When you have 130,000 Russian troops on your border, you have a military problem. And getting NATO troops into NATO countries to sort of stop the bleeding in Ukraine was a good course of action a week ago. So this thing didn't bleed, you know, that, but the theory was it was going to fall quick and it was going to bleed other places. And that, that, that is frightening because if he did touch Estonia and those Russian populations there, that would obligate us to a conflict that's nuclear. So there, there was just a lot of concern. And I, I was frankly anxious about it myself until, you know, until 24 to 48 hours when this thing started. <laughs> and you're like, well, I guess they, they're not as proficient as we thought. So historically, Russia, Russia doesn't win wars. I mean, it loses a lot of wars. And when it wins, it doesn't do so because of tactics. It does so by overwhelming artillery. You know, you, you carpet destroy with artillery, then you send infantry in to occupy the rubble. And we saw that in, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in, in even Donbass, which is an economic basket case. Because uh, Russia doesn't take care of its, of its satellite states in occupied territories. I mean, it lets them rot. And so, um, and one of you guys, sorry if I don't, I don't remember, maybe both of you guys wrote about how at the beginning of the war, it seemed that Russia was holding back on those traditional, that traditional approach because, you know, the argument was Ukraine is part of Russia. They want us to, to liberate them. So you wouldn't go in and just basically level entire cities. Um, and obviously that appears to be happening, at least in Kharkiv, which is within easy reach of, of Russian soil, you know, long range artillery. So. Is there, this is, the conflict's a little different than a lot of places because, you know, you've seen civilians block convoys. Like, that wouldn't work in Syria. <laughs> I mean, those civilians would be <laughs> immediately, you know, eradicated. Um, but it does sort of create some constraints and problems for Russia, right? Trying, uh, trying to claim at the same time that these are our brothers and sisters and they belong, they're Russian, actually. There's no such thing as Ukraine. They're actually Russian. Then why are you killing them? Yeah, I mean, it, it brings up a good point uh, why you're it, it negates their argument. You know, we want Ukraine because it's part of Russia. Oh, by the way, we're going to level it and reduce it to rubble. Um, yeah. So, they, you know, they sort of painted themselves into a corner with that. It, it's it's why they should like, again, the, it's like for us in Afghanistan. You know, if, if our objective was to get bin Laden, right, okay, we could have. We didn't have to surge. Obama didn't have to put all those troops in, right? That was a bridge to nowhere. Okay, that was the David Petraeus. We just need a little bit more troops, and we're training the Iraqi army, right, or the Afghan army, and they're almost there, and they're almost there. It's, you know, this, you, you can see the same stuff filtering up to Putin that maybe is not accurate. Um, but if they had limited their scope and focused on these parts of Ukraine where they would get indigenous Russian population support, like Donbass and Crimea, and they make that land bridge, they could have had a limited operation in Ukraine, that would have created problems for Zelensky because they would have been operating in areas where people would have supported them and they would have had a geopolitical argument. Hey, they're not treating Russian minorities correctly. So we came in to help those Russian minorities. By going big, right, not only did Putin create operational challenges that his army wasn't ready for, but he's created geostrategic issues as well because Kiev is not, it's not a Russian town, right? So he, he I like to say they over, they over, bit you know they, they they bit off more than they could chew but if they had limited it they would have had a, in my opinion a chance to really really create more problems you know, yeah if you take that dumbest region if they just focus on that europe would have fractured i mean italy well, right was, they, they wanted to sell gucci to russian oligarchs and that was their big thing they didn't want to give up luxury goods to russia Germany, of course, yeah. you know, everybody would have called it a border dispute, right? That's what you yeah. got on Fox News. It was a border dispute. So again, Russian ethnic minorities being mistreated. This is Kosovo now, right? Albanian majorities being mistreated by a Serbian government, right? You see, you saw it in Macedonia, right? Oh, Albanians being mistreated by a Macedonian government. When you start getting into these nation state dynamics, you can make a real argument that limits international influence based on you know, border disputes and Putin over, he overplayed his hand straight up. So looking at the map of occupied territory right now, you know, one of the things that's so striking is of all the talk of logistical problems, all that occupied territory is hugging friendly territory. There's no real penetration into the center of the country, right? Where you're, you're thinking about hundreds of kilometers of unsecured, um, 
logistic lines. And, you know, keep coming back to logistics is so critical. But I think it's important to note that all the problems they're having right now, they haven't even, first of all, they haven't taken a major city as we're talking about right now. Mary, they haven't even taken uh, Mariupol, which is so isolated out in the southeast corner of the country, far away from Kiev and, and, and Ukrainian supply lines, surrounded by hostile ter- ter- territories right south of the Donbas region, which was Russian-occupied, literally a stone's throw across a body of water from Russia itself. And it's still in Ukrainian hands as we speak. And eventually it's going to fall. I mean, it just it has to. I mean, I can't imagine it, it sticking around. But if they can't handle supply lines now, is there any chance they're going to learn to do this better as they start punching into the middle of the country? I don't know. I think one of the things with that convoy, there's a couple of theories on that convoy. One is they just and go let's talk about the, let's just, the convoy is just from Kip to the Belarus right. border in so, one tight street, all packed in right. together. So one of the theories on the convoy was they sent battalions first and smaller elements, right? And then, you know, or it's just wave after wave, right? That's the Soviet way. You said wave after wave. One of the theories on the convoy now is like, people got their ass chewed, send it all, right? And so there's a lot of logistics capability in that convoy. So it's like, just send it all. But again, they still don't know how to, they don't know how to make cake with the ingredients, you know? And so I, I have no idea. I, my opinion is they're not going to figure out sustainment. You're going to see them stealing from Ukrainian gas stations. Oh, that was already out how to do sustainment, right? Yeah. But yeah, even downtown in, in Kev, if they're there, like they're just going to raid grocery stores and take from the civilians because that's, you know, this is like, uh, this is the, you know, British military in the Revolutionary War, right? This is why you can't quarter people, you know? And so um, it, it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we're going to, and as the days, go out maybe maybe the convoy is just a way for putin to get some leverage but i kind of think they're just like throw it all together so they're not separate and because they don't have their sustainment with their maneuver elements at all and you know we'll see i mean that convoy has a lot of everything for all we know it's out of gas too but i I, i'm not sure they're going to figure out sustainment in a mechanized force overnight that's not that you're talking phd level logistics here and, and they're they're in kindergarten on it yeah, it, it's hard to learn that stuff on the fly. You know? Yeah. You know, we were, we were talking about what they should have done. And, you know, it's easy to, you know, armchair quarterback this or, or luck in hindsight. But I think back to what the what the invasion of Iraq looked like and how methodical it was and how there was one main axis of advance and two supporting axes, one in the north, one to the east. And I just wonder what Ukraine would have looked like if Russia had instead of doing all this stuff everywhere all at once, chaotically, if they had left Russia and tried to take Kharkiv in the east, which is very close to the Russian border, and what it would look like now if they had massed their forces there, gone into that city, which I assume has a, a higher Russian population than Kyiv. It does. And it, and it has, you know, they have a much shorter supply line with, with, with that location. Like 20 so kilometers. To, yeah. So, so you've got a much shorter supply line. You're intimidating. It's at the beginning. They probably could have taken that city if they'd massed all those forces and all their air power on that one objective. Yeah. So, you know, so what, and Brandon, what would it look like now? What would it look like now if they had successfully taken Kharkiv? So if three days ago they taken that city, it's the second largest city in Ukraine. Okay, now the Russians have taken it. Okay, now they're consolidating their power. Now they're going to move. Now they're going to advance forward. Okay, so if you're the Ukrainians, now you're intimidated. Now you're freaked out because they've taken a city. And not everyone in that city hates them because it's got a, you know, potentially a friendlier population. But they didn't do that. There's also, Brandon, no, there was no linear, like, three Ukrainian divisions online in the defense, right? We didn't see that. So if you were going to faint in Donbas, right, which is make the Ukrainians think you're going to attack there and then come from the north, you know, you do that to divide assets. The reason we dropped in the 173rd Airborne Brigade into into to, into northern Iraq was simply because we couldn't get 4th ID there. You know, we really wanted two main accesses in 03. Yeah. But the Turks would 4th Infantry us. Division is just a, you know, a larger right. mechanized yeah. armor division. Yeah, so we wanted to disperse Iraqi units, right? So we didn't have a big fight. There was no, like, big linear dynamic here to, like, separate Ukrainian forces. I mean, Ukrainian forces, to their credit, have kind of, you know, not fought face-to-face online. I mean, they've, they've chipped away at these guys. But there, there was no reason to use the three accesses because there was really nothing preventing you from 
dominating one access, which would have allowed you sustainment. Maybe you go with two accesses, but three accesses is a lot. I mean, they have more in Ukraine than we had in Iraq. I know Brandon talked about the access from the West and the North, but you're talking like the Ranger battalions to the West and you're talking a brigade from the North. The real access of advance was from the South, right? That's where the mechanized access was. Multiple, you know, I mean, this is uh, Rommel in, 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 in the desert in, in 42 and 43. It's like logistics will eventually, the reason we beat the Nazis in North Africa was Rommel ran out of supplies. He couldn't sustain it, you know? Um, but Brandon brings this great point up. There, there was no reason to divide your forces like that. None, zero. They could have the, taken Kharkiv. They could have consolidated there. And then now they look like a beast, you know, now you've taken the second yeah. largest city. Yeah. And, you're flexing. You're flexing. Yeah. You're flexing. And, and, and the whole world is sort of on edge. You know, what are they, where are they going to go next? And, uh, and they could have at that point, you know, then you just go city by city. That's what we did in Iraq. That, you know, people forget the Iraq invasion by the Americans. It, we didn't, no one took Baghdad in the first couple of days. It was very methodical and it took three weeks, yeah. but U.S. forces went city by city, and it was methodical, and it was, you know, echelon of fires and combined arms, and, you know, and there was lots of chaos within that, but, but it was ultimately a very methodical advance up from Kuwait toward Baghdad, um, yeah. and, and it sort of built steam as it went. So by the time the 3rd Infantry Division crashed into Baghdad, you know, there wasn't as much resistance left. Brandon, I always think they just thought they were going to thunder run him in and ukraine was just well, gonna quit and and, and their no, they did. To, yeah absolutely they did they thought they were gonna they, they it's like they looked at the american invasion of iraq in 2003 they looked at the german blitzkrieg in world war ii and they were like oh we got that as i understand uh, it the blitzkrieg they, though was three waves right it was it was you, you had the mechanized armor come in spearhead and then you had you had uh infantry whatever take and secure the ground behind that spear point and then there'd be another push, right? It, that's a, it's that's vaguely how I remember how the Blitzkrieg, German Blitzkrieg, happened in World War II. So it was three waves. Russia had one wave all around, which again speaks to that. And if you even look coming out of Crimea, they split in two, right? They went you know in two different directions. And up north, they came down. They came out through Chernobyl, um, and then down the other side with um, Chermisky, the or they're stuck, right? So they they again everywhere else, you know, yeah, they have forming areas of, you know, attack, but even those are sort of splintered. And so I think somebody counted there's like 15 avenues of attack. So if you have 180,000 troops, that sounds really impressive until you realize you're dividing them by 15 and makes it a lot easier to handle. And then you throw on top the lack of combined arms, no air force, weirdly, and supply lines are dying. And, and so everything sputters and we're still at the border, basically. We haven't even gotten into the meat of Ukraine. Western Ukraine is fine. Like trains are running. Like how's rail not the first thing you take out? Trains are running fine. I mean, the first thing we would have done is we would have, we would have knocked the Air Force out and we would have taken all their airports. And then we would have met people there. I mean, like we want airports in the American army because that's how we get logistics in. The Russians, clearly you guys talked about the air assault but we would have knocked their aircraft out. I mean, that would have been the first thing to control, control the skies. And then, you know, we would start like Mariupol when, when I did the tabletop on the, on the Ukraine invasion six months ago, the first thing I did was taking Mariupol because it's a seaport. You know, we we're going to take logistics subs and squeeze out, but they, yeah, they, I don't know. They, they, they are struggling. And now artillery is a problem though. Is there any, any scenario that we see that, that Ukraine can, can make a dent on that utility, you know, those, those multiple uh, launch rocket systems that are just, you know, bombing the crap out of, out of some of those cities. It depends on how long they can keep their air assets in the air. They've been, they've been launching strikes with the Ukrainian air force and with, and with drones, uh, with the UAVs. Um, I don't know how long they can keep that going. I mean, eventually they'll start getting shot down, but they've lost yeah. five at least of the 15 that they had. So yeah, they're being degraded for sure. Marcos, they have counter battery. The Ukrainians have counter battery radar. So the question is like where the, if the shots are coming from Belarus, it's, it's a different problem or inside Russia, you know, with the rockets, they can shoot them from a long way away. Yeah. Um, but, but any of their anti-armor equipment will work against those guns. You know, they just have to be able to know where they're at, but they have the radar system to say, this is where the shots are fired from. It's a question of, you know, how do you, how do you go and take that out? Because they're, you know, you're talking about way, way back, you know, and being able to like shoot a Kharkiv from outside the Ukrainian borders. That's what makes it complicated. 
So unbelievably, we're, we're down to our last 10 minutes. So let's quickly talk about you. If you are a NATO planner and you want Ukraine to hold out the Russians, what are you focused on delivering to the Ukrainian armed forces right now? I mean, you know, anti-armor, um, communications equipment, fuel, batteries. Um, you know, there was this story yesterday about uh, how they were going to get some aircraft from the EU. I don't know where that stands. I mean, obviously. It's still apart. Some- I think Russia threatened and said that if yeah. they'll consider yeah. it, a, yeah, an act of war. So well, that fell I mean, apart. You know, they're going to, I mean, they're going to need, you know, food, fuel, water, ammunition, uh, and the, you know, the higher tech stuff like the javelins, um, UAVs. UAVs um, are the drones. Yeah. Marcus, I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. about how do you take care of the civilians? Yeah. Um, because if, if they want to fight, like, look, we're talking about the president of Afghanistan got on a plane and left. Okay. And it, it's, it's phenomenal to watch the will of the Ukrainian people. And, you know, if I'm NATO, I'm worried about what do we need to do to protect civilians? Because if, 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 if the civilians don't have food, right, or they don't have basic, you know, ways to live and keep the fight going from a sustainment standpoint, uh, they'll quit. I, I think the other vulnerability is the Russians are not maneuvering at night. Uh, if I was turning on my TV uh, right now, yeah. I'd be like, oh my God, here comes the Russians. Like, no, nothing's happening tonight because they don't. No, they're just lobbying artillery. Right. Yeah. Right. So nothing's happening against tonight. So when I wake up in the morning, I'll say, okay, what happened? But tonight, it's over. If you're watching right now, Kev's not getting taken tonight. So I start to think about where are the vulnerabilities with the Russians and, you know, the, the, the ability for us to provide them accurate intelligence, right? IO operations and intelligence and sort of getting their ability to do certain things at night that the Russians can't do. I mean, you can tip the scales. I also think that like, this is a 21st century war. Everybody in the United States has actually participated in this war, right? Everybody in the United States who knows that Russia is losing this war, it's important for them to say that because Ukrainians are watching. Like this is a 21st century battlefield Mm -hmm. where if you're NATO, you're like, how do I win the strategic IO war here? How do I continue to create NATO support for what the Ukrainian population is doing? How do I prevent a humanitarian crisis and what are the tactical advantages that we could provide the ukrainians that give them you know some operational ability to defend themselves and i think you know those are three different lines of effort that that i i feel nato is working on to be honest i mean there there is a unity amongst nato right now um that that's unprecedented my four years in germany you know i know you were in germany too marcus back yep, in the day but like i still watch german soccer on saturday mornings and there's these kids in germany that are like oh yeah you know they're 18 and we root for the same soccer team, but they're like, why is the American army still here? And like, what, they're green party people. And I'm like, y'all don't remember what it was like to have the Soviet army on your border. Like you don't remember what it was like because they grew up after the fall of the Berlin wall. They messaged me this week. Like, are you guys going to defend us if we get me? I'm <laughs> like, yes, we are. But because, the, but you have to remember these kids who grew up in Europe post Berlin wall have grown up under a different environment, Marcus. It's not like when you were in yeah. Bamberg. It's and no. It's so this is the first time they've dealt with this threat, this reemerging threat. So I, I've not seen this type of unity in Europe since, I mean, since Kosovo. To be honest, yeah, I, I was in, I was assigned to a CAV unit patrolling the the Czech border, and and I remember I went back a few years ago with my family, and we went to the Museum of the Cold War in uh, in Berlin, and there's a piece of the of the Berlin Wall, and I'm like, holy crap, my life is history! <laughs> like this yeah. is like some bygone era, and suddenly it's it's not so bygone anymore. Yeah, it yeah. really it, it really isn't. Now, both of you have cautioned against any NATO military involvement, correct? Yeah, you know, I, I, I yeah. actually, I, I get like some of these folks are like, oh, no fly zone, no fly zone. But I, I got to tell you, like, you don't want this to be a U.S.-Russia intervention. Like right now, these Ukrainians are winning on their own. They're actually winning this war. It's not about casualties. You know, there's, look, we lost 20 Rangers in Mogadishu in 1993, but we won the battle. Like, be, because you take casualties or there's loss doesn't mean you don't, you're not winning. I mean, General Grant took casualties, but he beat Robert E. Lee. So I, I don't think you want to bilateral this thing at all. And I, I get the operational standpoint of a no-fly zone, but right now the Russians are getting run without it. They are legitimately getting run without it. And I, I'm not sure you want to see that type of escalation at this moment, because now do you, does that cost you your NATO coalition? And to the Biden administration's credit, when we were pushing to send more NATO troops to Eastern Europe a month ago, 
they were very concerned about this looking like a U.S.-Russia conflict. I'll give them credit for that. As all the heat that they take, that is an extraordinarily important dynamic because the strategic power for NATO is unity, is, is strategic unity. So I think you want to preserve that. And I'm not sure if you do a no-fly zone, you, you, you get that. Now, it's different if they take a NATO country or they, or they touch oh, a yeah, NATO country. Totally different problem set at this point. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, what are you going to do to enforce that no-fly zone? You're really going to shoot down some, some Soviet MiG, not Soviet, Russian it's, MiGs? It's, it's an act of war, yeah. you know? And they got nuclear weapons. And I actually think that saber-rattling saber is what scared off Poland and Slovakia from handing over their MiGs to, to um, Ukraine. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really changed. Nuclear weapons changed the game, you know? I mean, and, yeah. and when, you've got, when you've got a guy that you don't know, is, you know, he's already sort of saber-rattled with it a couple times, and it's like, is this guy serious or not? And then you've got a lot of Russian watchers, you know, a lot of experts in this area, who are warning us to take him seriously. So I will, you know, and um, so it certainly should give everyone pause when we talk about a no-fly zone and engaging, you know, Russian yeah. forces directly. Because it can, yeah. it can think about, people think they have this idea of how something's going to go, but once the shooting starts in any type of conflict, uh, your ability to control it degrades by the hour or, or minute. And so once this thing, sort, it could spiral out of control very quickly. Yeah, the Biden administration has been very rational about it. And there's a lot of high emotions and the images coming out of Ukraine are so impactful. But yeah, they're, they're clearly doing the right thing. And, and we don't have time to talk about the geopolitical consequences. But you're, Belarus, you know, wants nuclear weapons. Japan just asked the U.S. to, to station nuclear weapons in Japanese soil. Everybody's starting to realize these nukes actually, <laughs> they, they are kind of handy for national security reasons. And it's, it's, it's problematic you know, if we're looking for non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, but it's just sort of the reality. So we're almost, almost out of time. John, what can, I know VoteVets is doing some work, you know, trying to raise some money for the Ukrainian people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, if, if, if people go to our Twitter feed, there's a, a link in there to get a sticker. It says, I don't need a rod, I need ammunition. And, and we'll be pushing out another sticker tomorrow that's um, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. You know? So, so we're, we're, we're doing these stickers. Um, the money gets donated into our Vet Voice Foundation, and then we hand out 97% of it or 98% of it directly to a, a nonprofit that's working on the ground in Ukraine that, that we sort of validated called CARE. So um, I think we raised like 25 grand in the first two hours. But if anybody wants to go to our Twitter feed, um, you know, it's, it's a donation of any level to get the sticker. Um, and then they'll end up getting our emails and that type of stuff. They can join the organization overall, but just go to vote vets on Twitter and you'll, you'll see the sticker giveaway. And, um, you know, we just thought the Zelensky quote was profound. You know, it was his <laughs> equivalent of general McCullough being surrounded in Bastogne saying nuts, you know, we, we were in a country where we have a president, you know, who attacked our own capital essentially or motivated people to do that. And, and the idea that Zelensky, um, his life is on the line after what we went through in Afghanistan with Ghani, uh, is, is absolutely incredible. And um, the quote is, it, you know, it'll live in, in, in certainly Ukrainian lore, but in global lore for, for, for generations. Yeah, the, the Russian myth has fallen, but now there's a new emerging Ukrainian right. myth. And that, that was, you couldn't have scripted it better. I mean, it's like out of a Marvel movie. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Brandon, your post-military career, you've actually focused on helping out conflict and post-conflict areas. Can you, you know, tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Four and a half years ago, we founded Rakasan Tea Company, um, and this is a tea company based here in Dallas. Uh, we promote peace and economic development by uh, importing premium loose leaf tea from post-conflict countries, some of which have recently become conflict countries again, unfortunately. But yeah, that's what I'm focused on right now is, uh, is helping farmers in post-conflict countries reach U.S. consumers with their tea. John and Brandon, thank you so much for giving us your entire hour. That was, that was incredibly generous of you all, and that was incredibly informative. Thank you so very much. Marcus, I enjoyed it. It was great. I mean, I'm getting frustrated watching, watching all the cable news shows right now. So it was great <laughs> to come on here and talk with you guys. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. Thanks to Kara and the entire Daily Coast of Brief team for everything that they're working on. And thank you, the viewer and the listener, for everything that you do as we fight for a better America and a better world. And, oh, by the way, before we go, if you're watching on video, I have my, my Ukraine uh, shirt. And in case you don't know, the Ukrainian flag is 
It's uh, yellow and blue, and the yellow symbolizes your fields of, of grain or wheat, and then the blue is obviously the sky, and that always sort of kind of gets me, given what they're going through. So I'm so happy to be wearing my Ukrainian flag t-shirt right now in solidarity. And thank you, everybody, for everything that you're doing for our country and for our world. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.